Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam, and this, our 10th week, another question. Why additions? Yeah. I liked the phrasing here, because <laughs> uh, we've got the alternate take where I say, why additions? Why? <laughs> this is this is so much more, uh, this is actually really timely uh, when we're recording this, but maybe not when we produce it, because uh, we're, we're getting buffering. Um, because uh, Vincent just started talking about Apocalypse World V2 edition two and it's also a very interesting topic because in the past we've either talked about you know what game for something or a thing that you want to gm you know a gm skill or a game skill in general not necessarily for the gm you know how do you start a game but this is the first time we've just kind of taken a general topic like why do editions exist um and as usual i still have games that kind of answer this so nice yeah. I, I have games Games to rant about and games to talk about, but but not to answer. Yeah, I mean, my games kind of lead to my answers. Uh, so, I mean, I think the... So, what's your, what's your ordering? Uh, ordering my, of what? My, my, my three-topic ordering is from small reasons to big reasons. Oh, that, that, I did not think about topic ordering. Um, or rather, I did, but I didn't think through it that clearly. Uh, I think... Yeah, I could do small reasons to big reasons, sure. Alright, so my first big reason for new editions is that something was wrong in the printing. So, <laughs> so you printed it's a it... a very pedant, like, uh, not pedantic, but very, like, technical reason for well, it. Well, I, mean, I was thinking about all sorts of things that have different editions, mm -hmm. right? You have books, and you have games, and you have RPGs, and computer games, and these are, these are the things that you get patches for, mm -hmm. right? It went out and, oh shoot, that card wasn't supposed to go in the controller's discard or whatever. Or uh, uh, a whole bunch of war games that I have are like, well, the most recent errata is underlined and the things since the first printing are in bold and red or whatever. But I mean, there are definitely um, RPG printings, uh, relatively early printings of D&D, &D, where the differences between this edition and that edition are really, oh man, we screwed up and this is better, but it's effectively the same game, right? So when you, when you talk about printing, I was mostly thinking about, like, actual printing screw-ups. Uh, Paranoia XP was notorious, well, sure. notorious to me, I have no idea if anybody else <laughs> noticed, for, uh, like, the, the really weird printing screw-ups, and the crazy thing is, because it's Paranoia, mm -hmm. and it's presented somewhat kind of in-world... <laughs> You're not sure I, of its intention. I actually at first was like, man, this is kind of a weird choice, but I guess, you know, they can obscure some of the rules, too, and that's kind of like a fun paranoia thing to do. Uh, but if I remember correctly, I looked around online finally, and I was like, oh, they didn't mean to do that. Okay. Yeah, for sure. No, it's really... Well, it's, it's interesting talking about the difference between printings and editions. Mm -hmm. Um... And specifically editions, like, I feel like the difference between, gosh, uh, I can't think of a really good example, but, like, the difference between D&D 3 and D&D 3.5 is really small compared to the difference between 3.5 and 4, mm -hmm. right? 4 is practically a different game. 3.5, you know, if you squint really hard at 3.5, it looks like 3, so... I, I constantly forget the differences between them. I, I remember the one thing that stood out to me at the time, uh, which I, I can understand now, um, 
in third edition, weapons had sizes, which I thought was this brilliant system to, like, a short sword is just a small sword. Like, I got it. And then your your creature size plus the weapon size. Uh, 3.5 instead was like, oh, no, this is a short sword for a large creature, which probably is more authentic to, like, the meanings of the weapon. How you actually would how use you it. How you would use it and stuff. But uh, the, the very logical side of me really appreciated that like no this weapon just has a size like this is just a sword that is big right um and so you know th- that kind of thing that that makes sense that's that's generally how i think of editions uh with all of the other content that i look at right mm-hmm. books you have first edition second edition oh we had to fix this line because it didn't make sense if you look at earlier stuff that happened in the book or or games where well, we had to errata this because it totally busted the game, or these two sentences contradict, so we had to fix that. Uh, video games where you get that patch that's like, yeah, this had a gigantic bug, so, you know. Those those kind of things, those are the normal, my normal edition thought. Okay, RPGs, that's interesting. I tend to think of editions as bigger things, actually. Like, those... Uh, that's way more common in RPGs. Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. Like, the, the really interesting bit of this topic to me is how it relates to other media. Right. Um, like, uh, there are so many things that go through different editions and so many things that don't. I mean, uh, most fiction books might go through a minor kind of second edition fix some typos and stuff, but you're unlikely to have kinds of things that change between uh, editions of most RPGs. Like, it's unlikely that the ending of the book significantly changes. But there's totally RPGs where the significant parts of the game just get entirely swapped out. I mean, sometimes they're even hard to see them as the same game. Um, and then, like, movies. Like, movies... It's weird because books, I feel like, are kind of the least open to reinterpreting your own work. Like, you... Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody else might write, you know, their companion piece to... They might write Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or whatever. But it's unlikely that somebody's just like, you know, I really think that Brothers Karamazov needs to be rewritten in Russian uh, just to, you know, update it. That... Maybe you retell the same kind of story, but you're unlikely to be like, this is Brothers Karamazov second edition. Right. Um, and, I mean, this kind of, that kind of thing happens in board games, but they don't call it second edition either, right? They occasionally call it second edition, but more often you will have, like Martin Wallace does this, mm-hmm. uh, you have a few acres of snow, and he says, you know, the system is really cool, but it has a couple of problems, so I'm going to build a totally new game, Mythotopia, that's effectively the same thing, all the systems are the same, but let's we're going to change the things that I cared about changing, and we'll give it a different theme so it looks more different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not going to be A Few Acres of Snow second edition, because yep. that board gamers would be like, let's, I've got A Few Acres of Snow, I don't need... Yeah. And there are, I mean, uh, what is it, Advanced Squad Leader? Like, that actually has had some significant additions that people, I, I believe, you, well, you know this more than I do. In the wargaming world, you end up having a system... And then games that use that system. Mm. And the individual games will have the system rulebook and then the scenario rulebook. So, like, you have the coin system, Mm -hmm. and it has the system rules, and then each coin game has modifications to the coin rules. And the coin system takes it really, really far. Um, But there are other game systems, like uh, OCS, where the system rulebook is easily 40, 50 pages. Like, full-on, like, it could be an RPG rulebook, and then the individual games have their own rule books of 20 pages where they're like, you know, in this particular situation, 
we're using these weather rules instead of the system weather mm, rules. Okay. It'd be like it'd be like if Apocalypse World hacks didn't come out with their own books. They said play Apocalypse World, but instead of these classes, we're going to use these mo- modified classes. But that's what a lot of settings do for for things like D and D games that have a tradition of having settings that you attach to them, right. and even things like uh, the current Star Wars um, line from uh, Fantasy Flight right. kind of keeps a lot of the same stuff. And then they're like, this is they actually have a pretty good approach to it. This is kind of a different game, but, like, if you have them both, you're obviously like, oh, they can work together, but this is totally the smugglers and the rebellion and all that. Yeah, um, and and the big difference is that for RPGs, the base book is so big, you're not going to give it to the person with the setting book. Whereas mm-hmm. in war games, it's small enough that you just put all the books in there. Oh, this is this is Vincent's challenge for Apocalypse World 2nd Edition. And when people like us make more games based on it, uh, instead of us rewriting everything, he should try and get us to package in Apocalypse World. <laughs> uh, so my first reason for additions in RPGs is... Uh, are we going big to small or small to big? I feel like the errata reason is a really small... Yeah, that... that trying to find the, the smallest difference between editions reasons... To the largest differences between editions reasons. But okay. that's really arbitrary. It's interesting because I can judge my, my three answers on different axes as far as which are bigger and which are smaller. But I'm going to go with because business yeah, uh, as my smallest one because it leads to the smallest delta between editions. Right, because you, you don't really care about fixing about changing anything in particular. You, you have to change just enough that people think... I should buy I this guess new I book. should buy it. Um, yeah. Which leads to often decent changes, uh, but kind of somewhat workmanlike changes. The like, well, you know, we always knew the math here kind of sucked. Uh, and Everybody you know, complained about this damage number. Yeah. Yeah. And those, oh man, I, those are kind of the least interesting game design to me. Like, uh, fixing up a few numbers and maybe thinking like, oh, you know, the... I guess it's starting to sound like I'm talking about 3.5. You know, changing the sizes of weapons to use a slightly different way to measure the size of weapons. uh, That'll really fix things up. And I think the big thing about that that bothers me is that those changes feel like things that should have been fixed before publication. Um, And the problem is that, you know, we're hobbyist designers, right? And hobbyist designers, we have a, we we don't care. It's going to come out when it's going to come out. We have whatever amount of time, no big deal. And so we'll when we're really really happy with it, that's when it's going to show up. But, but I think as a hobbyist designer, you're also limited in that uh, you, especially if you end up with a successful game that you weren't expecting expect, uh, expecting to be successful. Uh, in my case, um, you you suddenly have a huge amount, like an order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, larger feedback. Group, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that, yeah, people, especially if you're designing just for fun, you design it until you're done. But uh, you also, the, the process of releasing is kind of a step in design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it kind of leads back into designing more. Right. But you tend to see, I don't know. I've seen we've seen a lot of like computer games in particular that come out and are just broken mm-hmm. on launch, or or board games. Uh, I've seen several board games come out and within the first month or so, somebody finds something that seems glaris- glaringly obvious after being revealed mm-hmm. that leads to this gigantic change. Uh, we were talking about a few acres of snow earlier, and that had something exactly like that called the Halifax Hammer. Yes. That uh, I mean. 
I'm saying this for everybody else's enlightenment, not my own, or not yours, because you're the one who told me about it and kind of ruined the game for me. Gee, thanks. Yeah, play uh, with Mythotopia. Mythotopia is better, anyways. But yeah, the the idea that you put out a new edition um, for business. I mean, this is kind of the like Madden and Call of Duty approach. Yeah, yeah. We're it's the new year. We're going to update all the stats. Go. Yeah, and some of those changes. I mean, they're different years of Call of Duty have been better or worse. Like some of those changes are are great. Uh, I'm even now a Madden player, and honestly, the changes they made on defense for twenty or whatever the last <laughs> one that came out, uh, they just called it Madden 15, I think. Nice. Uh, the changes they made on defense were fantastic. Which, considering that you got Richard Sherman on the cover, uh, made sense. Madden, madness, yeah. It's the epitome of, we're going to release a new one because business. Uh, yeah, RPGs don't do that so often. Like, like Wizards, Wizards gets a lot of flack for it. Um, I think the one big edition that caught it was 3.5. And 3.5, I like 3.5. Yeah. Uh, and I got 3.5, I never got to see 3.0 in play. Um, and I mean, all of those editions, they, they went back and started selling earlier editions because there are people that really like earlier editions and didn't move. So it's obviously a large enough change that it's not automatic. Like yeah. Madden, Madden is pretty much automatic. Yes. Uh, so, so, you know, it happens. Well, what's your second? So, I mean, I, I actually want to dwell on this one for just a little bit longer because Sounds I feel good. like the, the business idea of it has changed over time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the... Partially with a change in uh, play style, kind of. Um, it's interesting because we're in a lot of ways, I think, one of the best eras for adventures for D&D-ish games. Uh, I'm thinking more of OSR D&D games than 5th uh, edition, but yeah. like there are amazing adventures out there and they come out regularly and they're super well presented. They're fairly easy to get. Really good stuff. Um, but there's a perception that adventures aren't used as much, and I think that's part of the change in the business justification for editions. Uh, if you look at some of the earlier editions of D&D, they, the idea that there was a new adventure sold you on it, and this is part of why Pathfinder is very clearly just Pathfinder. Like, there's no Pathfinder second ed, and everything I've heard is they have pretty publicly said, like, no, we're, you know, they're painting themselves into a corner, but, like, they have such a adventure, uh, such a sub subscription base kind of for adventures that they can do that. They, it's not even kind of. You subscribe. You can just get adventures sent to you. Exactly. I guess it's not kind of. It, it is a subscription base. And when you have a subscription base, and the interesting thing is their subscription base worked so much better for them than uh, D&D Insider did for 4th. Right. Partially, I think, because it's a physical thing. It feels very different to have to pay your money each month to keep on using the software you want to use, even though that comes with PDFs of cool new adventures and Dungeon and & Dragon and all that stuff, uh, as opposed to each month you get this new physical thing to read on the toilet or whatever. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like business justification there is a, partially a shift in play styles in RPGs. Um, but anyway, my, my next, uh, my second biggest is... Uh, because we're tinkerers, um, which That's is my second biggest too. Oh, okay. It's it's I have oh I released and then a year later you go you know I've got this awesome idea for mm. this part, and and I can't, you can't just splice it into the old game. It's too large for an errata, mm -hmm. uh, but it's too small to call it a totally new game. 
So what do you do, right? Yep. And RPGs in some ways are hit harder by this than I think board games because... They're so big. They're, they're so big and because uh, the the fictional element of them, like the setting or genre or whatever, is so baked in that it's a lot harder to say, like, oh, I, I made Dungeon World and I really like fantasy adventure. If I make another D&D-ish game uh, that's, you know, fantasy adventure party-based stuff, um, it's really hard to differentiate that. Whereas in RPG, or sorry, in board games, you can say like, oh, I, I love uh, counterterrorism, and I can do uh, a series of games. A series of games, each in a different counterinsurgency situation, uh, and each of those will be, people will pick up on them. They can be completely different. I think there's two other gigantic things there, and one of them is that the designer board game kind of market is all about new games. Mm -hmm. They they want to play the next big thing and the new thing and let's play that other new game that's coming out and oh this is a new game from that designer I want to play a new game from that designer. Uh, and a board game is generally something that you pick up and learn especially the popular modern designer ones. You pick up and learn in hopefully 10 minutes or less and then play in an hour or two or less. Whereas a role-playing game is something that you know you generally need to learn the system, which is probably going to be heavier than a board game, uh, just because of the way they're both designed. And you generally want to spend way more time with a role-playing game mm -hmm. than with a board game, just because of the way that they're designed. And when you get comfortable with the system, you want to play it a long time, because that's the way that they're designed. Yeah. And there are people that do that with board games, and there are people that like playing lots of role-playing games, but I feel like they're in the minority of their relative groups. But I do think that... Even with RPGs, there is that, um, what's the latest thing, even for the game that I play? Sure. And this is kind of with the, the Renaissance and Adventures right now. Like, if you look at something like Lamentations of the Flame Princess, when a new, uh, they, they tend to batch them, uh, at least in my perception. But when, like, a few new adventures roll out for Lamentations, it's a, a big deal. People are excited, uh, and there's an element of, you know, oh, I want to play these now. Which, that's part of, I think, why RPGs have... Uh, th there are so few RPGs where even if you're picking up a supplement, it's something that you can use immediately. Um, whereas a board game, like, if if we had some time after the podcast, we could just swing by Uncle's Games and pick up something and probably make sense of it in time to play it tonight. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's almost as if adventures are the games in, in the board game metaphor, and the RPG itself is like the underlying system. So, mm -hmm. like, there's... Deck building games and board games, and if you know a deck building game, kind of this system, this underlying system, then you can pick up any one of a bunch of deck building games and pick it up relatively quickly, and that's cool. So, like, you want to play Lamentations? Sweet, you know Lamentations. Now let's get a new adventure. You'll have to learn a couple new things to play the new adventure, and you're off, mm -hmm. right? But because of the way things are sold, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think adventures are... And adventures are interesting because it's uh, there's usually less upfront learning. Like, if, if I've already played Dominion and I want to play Thunderstone or something... That's a relatively large piece of jump, but... It, uh, okay, so they're both deck builders, which is the, the point that I was getting to. Yeah, like, but in comparison from one adventure to another, yeah, Dominion to Thunderstone is a larger jump than... Uh, adventure one to adventure three. A larger upfront jump. Like yeah, yeah. a lot of adventures will have, you know, a moment in them where you're like, oh man, in this room, gravity's inverted, to use a classic, slightly overused example, uh, which require, like, but that 
moment comes further in. You right. don't sit down to play and are like, oh, in this adventure we roll D30s instead of D20s, or something like that. Whereas Thunderstone, you sit down to play and you're like, okay, I kind of know deck builders. Oh, in this one, uh, we're trying to beat monsters uh, and my hand gets played out this way. Okay, I got it. And from that point on, there's some emergent things, but uh, there's fewer surprises. Yeah, the upfront cost is pretty big. Yeah, uh, the upfront cost is big, but it's clear why this one's different from all other games upfront. Whereas right. an adventure, and part of it, an adventure is so fictional, uh, kind of. It, it's almost like sitting down to a new history book or something. Um, yeah. It, you know how to read, but uh, this one's going to be different. Yeah, and maybe you know, like, the, the subject area. Like, maybe you're, you've read a lot about World War II, but this one's about submarine warfare in the, I don't know, the <laughs> years of 1942. Or, I don't know. Like, it's on some specific topic that you're digging into. That um, is an interesting topic. There's a couple games on that. Oh, there are, yeah, they're very good, actually, from what I've heard, if we're thinking of the same ones. Um, but yeah, it's... the Where this goes back to why editions is uh, if you want to tinker... If you're the kind of person who likes to tinker but also doesn't design games that tend to come with published adventures, right. you're, you're kind of in the place of, oh, if I come up with a new thing, either have to sufficiently distinguish it that uh, it's easy for people to tell them apart, or you just kind of put out a new edition because you're like, well, uh, like I, I've heard a few other things that may be changing in Second Ed Apocalypse World, and uh, it, it's kind of the like, oh, I've, I've figured out these things. They're not big revelations in game design, but they're these little tinkers and tweaks and... Yeah, follow follow Vincent Baker on Patreon if you haven't yet, because he talks about uh, Apocalypse World 2 there, which is awesome. I, I only just followed him on Patreon because I'd heard about it through other channels, through Vincent, actually. Uh, and I was like, oh, he's talking about it. I guess I want to see it. Um, yeah, and that'd be interesting. I think, so D&D did that uh, post 3.5, before 4. They released a supplement about combat... Um, that was like alternate rules that you could use for combat yeah. that were their ideas for fourth at the time that was not quite a new addition, but enough of a change that they could play with it. Uh, and those rules were really interesting, and I can't remember the name of the book now. Which... Uh, it was... It's like the something swords. Yeah, wasn't it? the five um, swords, the seven swords. Five or seven, those were the. My because, I mean, those well. are the numbers, right? Yeah. <laughs> five, seven, or eight if you're in China. Uh, and, and they built it, if I remember correctly, they built most of it into classes, which yeah. is an interesting way to extend it. Right. Um, instead of saying, like, oh, everybody has to uh, start thinking about uh, all defenses as saving throws, let's say. Instead of doing that, you create a class that does that. And you create enough of them that maybe, if you want to, you can play an entire party of people who are all in kind of the new rules. Uh, the Saga edition of Star Wars right. um, what, had an element of that as well. Though, the, the most brilliant thing from the Saga edition didn't ever get reused again. This I, I love to rant about this because I think that more games should use it. Um, instead of the, the typical well, typical for modern D&D, thing of having a whole bunch of conditions that have very specific modifiers. Like if you're deafened, it's minus two to detect or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a disadvantage if you're deafened, sir. Yeah, sure, disadvantage. And disadvantage goes towards this. Instead, uh, for most things in Saga 
Star Wars, there was just a condition track, and it would say uh, you take a condition and you move one down the track, and each one steadily gets worse, right. which is kind of nice because instead of having all these individual rules, uh, you just kind of have this one thing on the character sheet that you track. And there were a few special ones for, I think, Blinded, because of course it's a D20 game. Uh, but it, it was a really nice idea. Um, it, it's a little bit like uh, Torchbearer, except it, in Torchbearer you can take conditions out of order if you're not taking them from the grind, mm -hmm. whereas here it was always like, oh, you took a condition, well, you moved one down. Uh, it, it was a nice abstraction, and it was elegant, and it made, compared to the games that it was based on, it improved things dramatically in play. I like that kind of direction that we're, kind of, that we're moving in game design overall. Um, a lot of games that came out in the 50s and 60s and early 70s were let's put as many rules as we need to into this so that it simulates the kind of thing that we want. And this isn't just RPGs. This is, this is war games and RPGs and, and whatever. Uh, and then there was an entire other class of games that were ancient and kind of had had all of their rough edges filed off. So, you know, you play Rummy and Rummy's ancient and poker and poker's ancient and they're simple and straightforward and only the important things are there, right? Mm -hmm. And as we've moved on from game design, uh, the games that come out now, they've filed all of those rough edges out as they get published. Um, and there are very few, when you talk about you know, complex games now, they're much simpler to play in general. Uh, especially, but maybe that's just there's so many now, and you only see the popular ones, and the popular ones are popular because they've done this. I, I think there's an element of that, and I, I think it's also somewhat cyclical. Like we're we're currently, I would say, mostly leaning towards uh, simpler, probably more consistent games. There's also an element of you know how many how many things are special cases, mm -hmm. uh, special cases that are still in the core rules. Right. Um, there's kind of the exception based design as well, which is how many things are special cases, but you have. Like, that particular rule spells out the special case. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that it's something that I like. I like that both exist, but I'm not sure that uh, one or the other is kind of something that I'm excited to see um, a lot of. Like, I want both to exist. I want the weird games that have all these weird corners and kind of throw you off guard through that. But I also want games that are just, like, quick and elegant and streamlined and... There's room for both. I like the corners, but I want to see them in play. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the problems with exception-based design is that if you forget it or miss it, which you are likely to in one of those games, you never get to see that awesome chrome, right? Sure. Um, there are games that do exception design that throw the exception in your face when it happens. Uh, there's a set of games called Fast Action Battles where you draw chits from a cup. Mm -hmm. And those chits are effectively the rules exceptions. Uh, um, and so, you know, there are World War II games about the bulge that's out, and normally you have these really crazy rules about exactly how traffic gets jammed on these streets, and you forget them in all of these other games because they're at the end of the rulebook, and they're like, paragraph 27.2, remember this movement mm -hmm. rule. But in Fast Action Battles, you draw the chit, and it says, well, this turn you can only move your tanks one space, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember the exact. And in role-playing games, in role-playing games, you want similar types of things, right? It, character sheet design plays into this a ton. Mm -hmm. You want your character sheet, your character's exceptions to be right there. You know, if you have something weird going on when you roll a will check or whatever, it should probably be right next to your will box. I, I think there's... 
That's certainly one thing that I like, but I, I don't think that, uh, like, I wouldn't say that that's a should necessarily. Like, I think there's room actually, um, depending on how the exceptions are designed in particular. Uh, if it is something on your sheet, you have a rule that says in these situations you get plus one or something, that, that obviously fits a lot better on your sheet. It's easy to find as opposed to buried somewhere in the rule book. But, uh, for example, some games have kind of subsystems that work dramatically differently. Instead of the uh, kind of epitomized by D20, they're like, everything is going to be this. Yeah. And maybe there's a few modifiers. In that case, yeah, those modifiers should be front and center and easy to find. But if each thing really is more of a exception, like if it really is like, oh, this time we're going to, uh, we need to find out how... How long somebody can breathe underwater was the first thing that came to mind, but that's a horrible example. <laughs> Grappling. Who cares? Grappling, sure. Like the the when that comes up, if it's just enough of an exception that it's a pain, then you've kind of hit the middle. This is where third edition ended up. You've hit the the nadir between a really easy exception that's on your sheet or a really interesting convoluted one sub that you have to look yeah. up. Yeah, sub game. And I, this comes up a lot when you get people from kind of different backgrounds talking about, like, OSR games that have often these weird one-off rules somewhere in the rulebook, which is fantastic because those things throw you off guard and they make it less predictable, all these wonderful effects. But only if you remember to reference them. And so if, if you have the one-off rule and you remember that it's there, that's awesome. I am all for that. Mm -hmm. It's the one-off rule that you don't remember. But uh, I think the there's a, a different mindset there. And mm -hmm. this is partially because RPGs are so fiction-driven sure. that uh, especially if you're working with um, the, the GM as the arbiter of the world kind of mindset, uh, if the GM misses that rule, the, the one-off rule for uh, making pottery... Oh, man, for my flight. examples are horrible. Flight, yeah. If, if I just say, oh, man, I forgot the book of the rule for flight, tonight it does this... Uh, and the next time it does something entirely different, or maybe we never even see flight again, the fact that uh, we're working with kind of a, a fictional world that we can be consistent about evens that out. It's yeah, not it's much the, more forgiving. It's not the board game thing where if we forget that there's a traffic jam rule that applies only in this town this far behind the front, the game, we've just lost an important part of the game, as opposed to if the GM is going to tell us if our tanks get jammed up and he misses that there is a rule for tank jams... Uh, but still says, oh, they get jammed up, like, that we've missed a useful tool, but we haven't missed something important. You have a safety net. We have a safety net, which is the fact that everybody there is uh, there to have a good time. Like, you're, this is the, the thing that I always say about Dungeon Roll, we, we made it to leverage the people at the table because they're, like, the greatest resource in gaming. Uh, yeah, the, the rules are there as a tool, they're important, they matter, but they only matter in relation to everybody. So what's your your final? My number one is one of my favorite topics to talk about uh, because new tech comes along. Yes, this is effectively my number one. Oh, okay. This is, this is my... We designed this version and two years later we realized this amazing change that would totally drastically change the game but make it feel better and more like the thing we really want. Mm-hmm. That's the best addition change, in my opinion. It's a really interesting addition change. Uh, I think it, it probably, if you're going to have a new addition, that is the best reason to do it, by far. Uh, but it's, 
it kind of gets into the, I, I use the word tech very deliberately because I do feel like as a game designer, sometimes somebody will introduce an idea and it's, it feels like a piece of technology. It's like, it's like somebody gave me, uh, a, the ability to open sockets in my code or something like it, it is a new tool that I didn't previously have that I can now use in all my designs and it opens up new avenues and maybe makes me want to revisit something. But games aren't really technology in that sense. Like, uh, Ooh, that's, that is a strong statement. Uh, so this, okay. This is the way that I like to approach this. Uh, there's a few analogies and there's kind of a central question. The central question, which is, uh, a bit too binary, but it's like where I like to start is our game is more like technology where uh, you want to use the most recent stuff because it is distinctly better and more powerful than what came before, or our game is more like art where uh, there are certainly new ideas being introduced, but the older versions are uh, as important, if not more important in some cases, than what's coming out now. I don't agree with your position on technology. Really? You don't always want to use the newest and, and most amazing thing, because there's trade-offs. Okay. There's trade-offs in everything, right? Uh, there are trade-offs. Would you... Here, I'm going to drop you in the middle of the desert. Uh, would you like this tool, which requires uh, electricity and a bunch of moving parts that d can't get sand in them, or this other tool, which is much simpler and doesn't require electricity, and you can probably fix yourself. Sure. Uh, the, the, the way that I normally think of the tech side of this is, uh, would you take, I mean, we've got a, an IMAX in right here, would you take right. an Apple IIe over that? Right, but the, when you talk about game design, I think it's way more the other kind. Mm -hmm. It's way more, here are seven solutions to this problem. Mm -hmm. This one's newer, but that doesn't make it better than the other solutions at immediately, right? Oh, I, I tend to agree. Like These are deliberately kind of polar points uh, just because they are so different. I don't think that we can entirely go into one or the other. Well, this is why, this is how I think about technology and game design, though, is that these are the seven technologies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the game, the, there's a book called The Art of Game Design, uh, a book of lenses. Uh, the author escapes me at the moment. And one of the ideas, one of the lenses through which you can look at game design in this book is the idea of this tetrad where there is technology in your game and he's talking about mostly computer games. So mm -hmm. for him, it is talking about, you know, here's the rendering path that you're using or whatever. There's technology, there is, there is kind of a setting and creative ideas. There are game mechanics that are separate from technology and there is uh, a fourth one, which is something about, something about theme that is separate from actual creative art type work. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that you can split these things and they should all probably support each other. Um, but you can think about technology as being totally separate. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you can build your big role-playing game and then look for, you know, a useful piece of technology to fit in this exception that you've built, the subsystem that you've built, uh, to support everything else. But when you're evaluating that piece of technology, you know, hopefully you're evaluating it from the perspective of your game and not the perspective of, I just really happen to like deck building, so I'm going to throw it in an RPG. Totally. Uh, I, I guess the thing to think about uh, that I try to bring out with this question is there are some places where technology has had a, a pretty stark forward advance that people don't go back from with, with a few exceptions. Like, uh, you know, once, uh, once you have 
the uh, like steam-powered ships sail drops off pretty drastically and becomes I mean there's still sailing for fun and stuff but uh, you know the, the railroads mostly die off uh, as you get more personal transportation uh, the use of horses changes dramatically those kinds of things are they we we tend to view them in overly simple uh, simply as advances. Yeah, and I don't think that's true for game design. Just like you, right? yeah. Uh, so the the place that I mostly end up with game design, the the best way that I can compare the new tech coming along is to um, cars. Actually, this is this is the closest I've gotten to an analogy, which is actually really cool. The fact that this is as close as I can get suggests that games are really different, which games, is part of why they're so interesting to talk games about. Games are weird. Especially role-playing games, because even with uh, the... Uh, anyway, I should go back to why cars before I... Yeah, cars first. Uh, the, the reason why cars, um, if... Because you're a programmer and you need a car analogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always has to be cars. Uh, if, if I had a friend moving from New York who's never owned a car and they asked me what car to buy, I'm almost certainly going to tell them uh, something... Fairly recent, not like a classic car. Maybe a used car, but not like a, you know, a 45 Camaro or... or One that's been around for a while, but the, you know, last year's model of Corolla. Yeah, like a Civic or something. Like, the... the, I'm not going to suggest some classic uh, car, because in most ways, cars get better in the practical sense. Like, for day-to-day usage... Uh, the current, you know, I've got a car that's a few years old. That is better than the car I owned before that. That was now more years 20 old. years old. <laughs> like I just, you know, I can, I have a CD player built in, uh, compared to some cars I've had, it has air conditioning. Uh, all those are just things that have improved, but there are, there's still a reason to drive classic cars. Like they're probably not the first thing you suggest. But they, you also wouldn't say, like, oh, no, everything before 2000 is horrible. Uh, Especially if you really like cars, you definitely want to ride and hopefully own some of these classic cars. And that's the closest I can find to RPGs. But the place that it doesn't match up is if somebody came to me and said they wanted to play D&D, which is not something we've directly answered, but we've kind of talked about. I would probably, if I if I was restricted to things that have been published as D and D, say Moldvay D and D, like the fifth edition to me, it's actually a pretty decent edition, but it's not a civic compared to uh, like a classic roadster or something. It's that's where it falls apart. I don't know. So yeah, I I, I agree with your analogy. I like your analogy. Your analogy is cool. Um, the idea of technology in games is just a gigantic topic. Yeah, maybe we should have talked about... Maybe we should have started there. Our other discussion was interesting, but... I think one of the interesting things with Moldvay, though, is that, uh, depending on who it was, I'm maybe recommending more the game than the text, uh, which kind of is almost like... Uh, if it's a car that I'm recommending you drive versus a car I recommend you ride in. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if I'm the driver, uh, like... I'm the DM slash driver, then I'm going to recommend a totally different game to you than if I am just the passenger and you're going to be driving. But I think the, you know, the, the key point to the analogy is just that there, there are experiences that uh, exist in particular games slash cars that uh, are classic and that if you try to replicate them, 
um, you're not quite, that's not always the most productive way to go. Right. Uh, if you're just trying to remake what was good, but with uh, the modern tools you have, how useful is that? Um, whereas if you try to make the best things that you can now with, you learn from those things and uh, so yeah, this is, cars have technology, cars are things of many parts. And it's interesting because even in gaming, uh, this is what I kind of alluded to earlier that I wanted to get back to, um, there are a few things that are pretty clear tech advances uh, that mostly line up with um, the early days of RPGs, but having dice of multiple sides, for example, like that actually, some of the things we take for granted on having all these polyhedral dice, dice are actual advancements that happened that enabled gaming as we know it. Right. Well, I mean, technological advances outside of outside of game design itself are one thing, but technological advances inside of game design and ideas that people have come up with. Dice aren't within game design? Well, dice, uh, within RPG game design, uh, mm. dice, dice existed in, in war game design before RPG design. And so it wasn't like, it wasn't like they were coming from scratch with the mechanical detail, right? No, but the, uh, there were some mechanical details, uh, chronologically around the creation of D and D, um, that were, that actually took place in war gaming. But as far as, dis uh, <laughs> discovering ways to make dice that had, a different number of sides than six, basically. Right. So the fact that 20-sided dice come up in, uh, and even if I remember my timeline correctly, and I'm sure somebody will point it out to me if I don't, 10-sided uh, dice didn't occur until after the early days of D&D. &D. Um, before then, you had a 20-sider that you renumbered because 10-siders are the only dice in the typical set that aren't platonic solids. Right, but so the thing about dice in role-playing games is that a lot of... A lot of the time in role-playing games, you treat dice as a straight randomizer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, especially coming from a war games background, you say, well, I think that the probability of this is blah, just like early AD&D stuff, right? You don't know? Well, decide the probability and then roll a die to match the probability. And the dice were used as straight, let's find out if this probability of thing happens. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's much less a technology advance from the perspective of mechanics using dice than uh, a, a role-playing mechanic where you roll dice and then assign them to stats, uh, and that says which things succeed and which things fail. Or you roll two dice and take the higher one. Things, things where you, as the player, have an option in the probability. I, I think that that's true, but part of that is our current perspective. Uh, I mean, we, for us, for our entire lifetimes, having a, a typical D&D &D set of polyhedrals has not been a big deal. Uh, and that gives, a, like, part of the thing you're talking about of just assigning probabilities without the um, percentile idea to dice, that either you have two 10-sided dice or 100-sided uh, dice, without that probability, people have a much harder time mapping probability to six-sided uh distributions because sure. you have to do it in weird chunks that technically have repeating decimals in them and all that horrible you stuff. You can't handle 16.6 .6 bar? Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of a pain and it's also very granular, which in some ways is sure. good. Uh, I'm a big fan of just D6, you know, five and six are good things, 
three and four, one, two are bad. They're big chunks, but sure. But uh, as humans, a lot of times we're used to dealing with uh, like percent probability and being able to just map that to one die roll is uh, an advancement that we can very easily take for granted. But my point is that that's not... So talking about technology, uh, it's not the technology to create a D10 that I am interested in so much as the technology to use percentile dice. That is much more interesting to me. And I think that kind of technological advance is something that, you know, you have your entire spectrum uh, of awesomeness. And it's not that a new technological advance obsoletes the old one, which is like what you're saying. It's that here are two more tools that you get to mm -hmm. use. And the problem with being a game designer, a modern game designer especially, is that we have a billion tools, right? Uh, you know, we have roll and move games in the board gaming world, and there are good roll and move games. It's not like they're all Monopoly and Parcheesi. We have things like Formula Day, which is amazing. So all of the old tools still exist, and we have a ton of new tools, and now you have to figure out how to use them all. Whereas if you're making a car today, uh, you're not going to make it with roll windows. You're going to make a power window car. Um, unless you have a really crazy reason to do otherwise, right? I want to say that I was just watching an episode of Top Gear where they actually did have a uh, car with roll-down windows because it cuts weight. Um, but anyway. But that's a weird problem to solve, and you hit that weird problem and you go, okay, now I have to solve this thing. Whereas in game design, you say, okay, I have this problem, how do I solve it? And all of your problems in game design are, well, I have... 20,000 tools, mm -hmm. which one do I use? I, I do, I don't know. I think that there are some tools that largely obsolete others. Not probably entirely. Can you think of one? Uh, so I think that, uh, oh man, I... It's a hard kind of thing to come up with on the spot, especially. It's a hard thing to come up with on the spot. I do think that some of the uh, techniques in scene framing uh, that have happened between games, like people, uh, they've developed some things there. And actually, oh, this is, um, I think that some of the ways to describe play, so this is technology mostly in uh, the writings of, writing of a book and in discussing this in podcasts and other people, we've actually developed um, some better ways to talk about certain things. Right. Uh, and you just, you're never going to talk about those things in another way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I do think that there are a few advancements. Uh, so when talking about things, I guess I should give concrete examples. Um, I think that uh, the, the one that comes most readily to mind is talking about um, procedures of play uh, as a larger subset, uh, superset of rules, kind of. Um, mm -hmm. the, the fact that we are now more aware of the number of that that what constitutes a, ga a game is not just the math of the game. Uh, the fact that a game tells you like uh, create a dungeon of a lot of levels is as much a part of game design as uh, the the dice you roll. Right. Um, and I, that's always been kind of known, like good designers were doing that, but I think we've developed some better ways of talking about it right. and discussing it. Vocabulary is so huge. Yeah. All of the books on game design I've ever read talk about how it's really a shame that we don't have better vocabulary about it. 
um, talking about you know kind of the nouns and verbs and how do you approach rules design and how do you approach player experience design and just the words are terrible. Um, the, the words are terrible and especially with the current state of RPGs uh, if you want to try and make it better you end up playing the definition game of you know at worst, what is an RPG? Uh, like, which just isn't productive. Right. Um, and so it makes it really hard to improve the vocabulary because uh, at most you kind of get some consensus. Like right now, I would say um, through a lot of people that I at least enjoy talking with, uh, fiction as a term for the um, fictional environment with which the game takes place in not just physically but like the entire place that we've imagined and all of the uh both physical and like procedural elements of it uh that has gained some traction and is useful uh but even that like people uh people with the dungeon world were like oh you talk about fiction like it must be a game of uh narrative past the hat kind of thing and that's not it at all but it's well, a really, it's a really, really weird thing for like this, the group of people that like role playing games and play role playing games and design role playing games. It's really weird that that as a whole we have strong opinions and are combative about them. When I feel like you go to uh, I don't know film analysis, right? Mm -hmm. In film analysis, you talk about this particular kind of shot, and nobody's going to argue with you that it's a particular kind of shot, I feel. Oh, I think that we probably just don't... Uh, I'm I not. we might just not know enough about... I'm not involved enough in film analysis. I would bet that that happens to a point, but I, I think you do also have a point there that... Uh, people are just... People they, are going to accept most of what you say. They have a large... Let's put it this way. I think they have a larger agreed-upon vocabulary. Right. Because it's... Probably because it's existed for longer. I, I think that... Yeah. It's not so much... I'm sure there are lots of technical things for people who really like film that people will... That, that would get debated in the way that RPG stuff does. But on the other hand, uh, like, if you watch Every Frame of Painting, which is an awesome YouTube series picking apart uh, cool things in film, uh, they have one about oneers, one one shot that the example does an entire scene. And I'm, I'm pretty... I guess he I talks about how this one is not technically a oneer. Oh, I was going to say that I doubt anybody commented saying, like... But you're right, there is a moment in there that he says this isn't technically... Oh, he yeah. says they, they did the one shot, and then in the middle they spliced another scene, another piece in, but they didn't have to, so it's kind yeah. of a wonder, but not really. But I mean, that kind of thing, uh, he can talk about that, and that one scene is the weird one. And most of the other ones are like, you know... Well, and I guess even the fact that there are exceptions to it, uh, I doubt, I haven't looked at all his comments, that there's a lot of people saying, like, no, you're using the term one or wrong, right. or something like that. Yeah, I'm not going to listen to you anymore because of blah, or yeah. Spielberg sucks because he uses this concept at all, or whatever, right? And it seems like such a waste of time and a waste of breath when you could just be like, okay, here's here's a word for this. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if nobody's super strongly objects we're just going to use this word for this so that we i don't have to explain it you know in 20 pages of definitions at the beginning of my book yeah and i think that part of that is just that rpgs are relatively young yeah. um I, I hope that this will get better within our lifetimes and even even game design at large we don't have good words um you know and game design is 
tens of thousands of years old. Yeah, but I, I think that there's a difference in modern game design uh, versus... I feel like there's a larger evolution sure. in modern game design versus uh, like classic game design than there is in, say, modern writing versus classic writing. Um, but yeah, it, it's... This is actually something that Luke uh, Crane said at PAX during the panel there. Um, if we're going to... He was opening it up to questions and basically said, uh, I have one request, let's keep questions to things that actually happened. Uh, because this isn't... Uh, I never really thought about that, but it comes. it's kind of the same thing as the language discussion. So much RPG discussion can also get sidetracked into the but don't you think that would cause this or whatever. Um, partially because so much RPG play happens uh, with a group of friends. There isn't a whole lot of it that you look at somebody else's. Um, so you trying to agree on language, like not stick too much over language and trying to discuss things that actually happen uh, improve the discussion a lot. And I think actually that's part of why this podcast is cool because we mostly stick to things that we can talk about that we actually know, like the, not the hypothetical of, I think additions could be bad. Uh, yeah, it's, I think that that's probably another big reason why all of that stuff in general, because RPGs definitely pull game designer mindsets, mm -hmm. right? Cause as a DM, you are acting game designer almost oh, yeah. all the time. And as, even as a player, you know, you suggest, well, we could probably fix that rule or whatever. And so thinking about that as a game designer, you think about, well, you know, how is this experience going to play out? Mm -hmm. And game design experiences are much harder to analyze than most other experiences because they interact with players. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, movie and book design, you know, reading this, this is going to cause somebody to get scared. Uh, it's much more straightforward to analyze that. It might not be obvious but it's at least more straightforward because you only have to worry about you know this text is going to be the text that they read and this movie is going to be the movie that they see and i just have to deal with well this person this individual happened to approach this differently and well you know on average this is going to be a little bit more scary than this other thing and that doesn't make it that doesn't make it easier to write or easier to film something but at least makes it easier to talk about it whereas in de game design it's like well uh, this design is super dependent on the players. And this RPG, uh, this GM running this RPG is going to run it totally differently from this GM. Like, watching Will Wheaton play Dread, it's like, he's running Dread totally differently from how I run Dread, mm -hmm. but his players are having fun, and Dread is doing what Dread does. So, you know, what do you do, right? And it's just a weird situation. Yeah, the, it's... Designing an interact, not just an interactive system, but uh, like all all game design, you're designing an interactive system, which is already tough because you're not just dealing with uh, a thing which the person will come to, like a, a movie or book, like a static thing. They're going to see the same thing every time, and there's a degree of interaction there, especially with um, certain texts and certain movies and stuff where there's uh, the opportunity for the, the consumer to be to notice certain things and be involved in certain ways, uh, but it's not quite the same as something that actually is actively responding. And then RPGs go a step further and are especially tough because you're actually... You're, you're not so much writing a game in the sense of a video game or a board game, you're giving people a tool which they can then use. You're giving them a set of procedures. It's almost like you're writing a book of... Uh, 
first aid or something. You're, like, you're designing the walls and the floor, and yeah. they're going to fill it with stuff. I wouldn't even go that far. Like, I think that you're, you're actually, this is a good comparison. You're telling them all about carpentry and then saying, <laughs> okay, make the room. Uh, we and, have to bring this back to cars. <laughs> yes. You're, you're the only way I'll understand. You're explaining, oh man, I don't know Mechanics. enough about cars. I mostly <laughs> launched Top Gear and that's about it. Uh, <laughs> You're explaining internal combustion engines <laughs> and, and then saying, go build one. That's a bit dramatic, but yeah, like you're, um, you're starting so early. You're starting so, uh, so much to a procedure as opposed to an event. Like, uh, there are a few RPGs that have messed with this, which is really interesting. Um, there's, uh, a game that sweet Agatha, um, which, if I'm remembering the right game, it's going to be hilarious if I'm not, uh, <laughs> comes in a sealed envelope and has, like, things that you open and stuff. And through that, it is providing a bit more of... Uh, it's not just providing a procedure. It's also providing uh, modifications during the middle of that. Whereas most RPGs, even if they give you a whole bunch of setting and stuff, are, are just giving you things for you to use. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you're going, up to you. Um, I don't know. It, it's interesting and it, it really challenges so many of, uh, the terms that we want to talk about it with when talking about, you know, and then I say the new additions because you have new tech in gaming and is tech even an applicable word? Yeah. Uh, and what kind of technology and, and what pieces of technology? Yeah. It's just, just a very difficult thing to talk about. So it's funny because we've ended up basically all, pretty much all of our answers were the same and we still manage to talk about it for quite a while. Oh, they're, they're re it's really weird. I mean, part of me, part of me wishes that, you know, D&D &D 4 was not D&D, &D, that it was some other called game. Uh, and I understand the business reasons for calling it D&D, &D, but I don't understand the game reasons for calling it D&D. &D. Like, it feels like they could, they could have totally released another game and it would have sat on the shelf next to D&D 3.5 because people buy stuff from wizards because magic cards make money. And and they would have been able to sell both editions and they would have served different people. But I, I feel like it was that obvious. I mean, wizards are... There's a lot of smart people working there and they have way more access to data than we do. Like, if, if they thought that was the case, I think they would have done it. Yeah. Um, I, I presume those guys are generally competent. And they have way more resources. At, and sorry, generally competent makes it sound really low bar. Like a lot <laughs> of them are actually really good. Yeah, very well. They, yes. they know a lot of stuff here. And so I, I tend to presume I, because I feel the same way. I think that if it would have been uh, even today, if they were republishing hard copies of classic editions, I feel like they could be uh, on a regular basis. They do some special editions. I, I feel like that could work. And if yeah. they were even supporting them. But the fact that they're not, I presume, means that they've looked into this and found some really good reasons not to. I, the, the, the question in my head is whether it's a market question or a design difference question. And I uh, feel like it's probably a market slash business question. Probably. And I am, I am so far out of that field that oh, yeah. I cannot speculate. I, I hate the business side of things. And it, yeah, I... I think that the fact that RPGs have gotten, like, the the idea of additions in RPGs is not quite like any other field with the exception of maybe a few board games. Uh, and 
at the same time, it's become very standard. It's really right. interesting that, uh, you know, if, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good author to use. If, um, unfortunately I can only think of dead authors. If Terry <laughs> Pratchett, uh, who I loved uh, as an author, but unfortunately he's not with us anymore, wants to write a new book that deals with, uh, the witches of Discworld, it's not a new edition of Witches of Discworld. It's this new thing, uh, which partially goes back to being interactive. Like, he, right. he can make it different enough that he can say that. But it's weird that RPGs got into this tradition of new editions, that uh, you, you don't just make a new thing with a new name or maybe a subtitle or something. Instead, we're, the industry standard is to do a new edition. Uh, and it... I mean, we, we've just explained all the reasons why, but it's just so weird, and it, I, I wonder what effects it's having. Uh, this is one of those hypotheticals that I don't want to go into a whole lot, because who knows? Like, this is, this is not something that I can say for sure is happening, but I don't know if new additions are helping or hurting. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's a productive question in, in the long run. Like, new additions are, and it's just a weird little artifact of how RPG design ends up working, and... As far as, like, in particular, Apocalypse World V2, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's going to come out, and I'm going to buy it because I, I really like Apocalypse World. And, and then the, the big question is, do I play both of them, or do I toss effectively the mm -hmm. old one? And I guess that's the, that's the difference in whether I feel like it should be a new edition or a new game. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to keep the old one, then it should probably be a new game. So in your mind, every edition... Well, maybe, I, I don't know about you, for you, but for me, every edition of D&D except maybe 3.5 and Essentials for 4th edition should be a new game. Should be a new game. Oh, that's an interesting way to... And it. I mean, I don't, I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, it's... And this is the way that D&D is treated, too, especially in, in public conversation. You talk about... You don't talk about D&D uh, no subtitle almost ever. You whoa, talk about whoa, whoa. no, no. So you always have an implied subtitle, but I think you only have an implied subtitle if you are a relatively knowledgeable gamer. For no, a lot of even if you're not, you have an implied subtitle because talking about D and D five is very different from talking about D and D three. And if but only if one person is talking about D and D and the other person is talking about D and D, and they don't know anything about gaming, they just know I grew up playing D and D two or whatever, and I grew up playing five. And they're talking to you, they were very quickly come to the point where they go, oh, you aren't playing my edition. Yeah, eventually they will get to that. I, I guess I don't I, feel I like that's implied. I think it's super I don't always feel like that's implied because the people who are talking about it aren't actually implying that they're talking about different things. They just happen to be, there. there's two things called D&D. &D. It's almost like a homonym or something. Like, one of them is talking about, uh, <laughs> there's a friend of mine named Kale, and if you're going to make a salad while he's around, you might get confused whether you're talking about what's going on. Anyway. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, in your head, you're referring to a particular thing. Exactly, yeah. And, and, I, and that's... But, but if... But in the, in the... These two editions are so... Are, are obviously you use the second thing because it fixes and slightly changes some things from the first thing. Then you still talk about them as one thing, mm -hmm. right? Apocalypse World V2 comes out and it's effectively the same game but a little bit you know more that more like what Vincent wanted then we talk about apocalypse world apocalypse world we don't talk about 
oh well, are you playing Apocalypse World V2? Because, you know, then I have to totally change how I'm thinking about this thing. Mm -hmm. But if I talk to you about AD&D, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, there's that subtitle again, right? Yep. If I talk to you about AD&D, we're going to have a very different conversation than if I talk to you about... Okay, so I was playing D&D, &D and this thing happened, and then I got advantage, and you're like, oh, you mean five. And mm -hmm. in your head, you make that shift. And because they have that subtitle, they are effectively different games. Sure. Right? But if they were all basically this slow continuation, the most modern, like, like Magic, right? Mm -hmm. We play Magic. We don't play Magic 10th Edition. We don't play Magic 2010. We play Magic, even though... 6th edition variation, 2010 variation, and these massive rules change over the past 20 years have changed it to be a very different game. But you still talk about magic. I play magic. But I think that part of that is because magic is a different sort of game than an RPG. Like, they're... But yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I think that you're actually getting at my what now is going to be my special bonus extra answer to the question, uh, editions exist because branding. Like, yeah. it, if Dungeons & Dragons had been Dungeons & Dragons, uh, Heroes of the North, and that was all super heroic 4th edition, and then Dungeons & Dragons, uh, the... The Great uh, Abyss. The Great Abyss. Uh, all of those would be a challenge for the brand as a whole, um, especially for a relatively small market. I'm curious now to see, like, because, so Magic's model is uh, every so often release a new set and collect those into blocks. I am very, very curious if D&D &D or an RPG in general could use a very similar model where RPG comes out, uh, you know, effectively edition one, but you call it, you know, this particular RPG, and then Every three months for that next year, you release a gigantic adventure, which has slight class changes and errata and supplements and whatever, and then another big adventure. And then next year, you release uh, the you know core set, uh, which would have another subtitle on it, and it would have all of those errata from those adventures kind of wrapped into the core set, but it would still be that game. And then you would do three more adventures, and then you would do core set, and then three more adventures. And I wonder if you could do that for RPGs. I'll let you know if we ever get around to doing it for Dungeon World. That was actually uh, maybe not the, the core set element of it, but um, with the once we get Inglorious out, which is our supplement for doing war, the idea was that um, supplements will be events that are uh, both rules-wise kind of events and that they bring changes to how the game runs, but also a literal event that you can drop into your game. Um, and you do those possibly in kind of thematically paired sets. Like, uh, I don't know, I'm definitely not going to commit to any plans, but one thing that we've discussed is, you know, after Inglorious, is it about um, kind of a power struggle in a void, especially like a post-war wreckage? Like, uh, is it basically uh, the the aftermath of war? Um, with a, a more direct point on it than that. It would probably be about power struggles and survival in a wrecked landscape. Um, but then those two, in theory, uh, could... I, I don't know that we'd ever combine them with core Dungeon World into, you know, the new Dungeon World update, but uh, it, it would be possible that instead of publishing two individual books, eventually you slap them together in kind of the block way that Magic does. Um, but on the other hand, we're... <laughs> another reason for editions, we're tinkerers, and 
we're not, uh, the fact that Inglorious has taken so long is partially because we get distracted by so many other things. I think it takes somebody very dedicated, uh, possibly in a, a Wizard of the Coast style setup, to do that kind of block, block. Uh, Distraction is huge. I think one of the big reasons that magic has been able to maintain kind of this is magic is because they were forced to, mm -hmm. right? They were, especially really early on, uh, Wizards was very, very, very focused on being able to support a collectible game. Mm -hmm. And a collectible game means very little if all of those cards are worthless because now we're going to change the game. Yep. Uh, and there's a ton of decisions made in Magic that really care about that. Whereas an RPG, you release a new book and if this new book is the new edition and it contains all the rules, somebody coming to the game can buy that and play it. And it doesn't drop the old books, like you can still play with the old books, but it doesn't have to care about them either, right? It can mm -hmm. just totally depart. And because you are allowed to depart, uh, it's really tempting as a game designer to say, well, you know, if I make this much larger change, this will be much more like I want to play. Well, and not even, uh, I mean, we had early dis earlier discussed this kind of tinkering, the kind of addition tinkering, but I'm actually thinking of the fact that uh, Adam Coble and I are both tinkerers and that like we, we both have other entirely non-dungeon world designs. Like the part of the reason for Inglorious being slow is that I'll open up Inglorious and then be like, oh, I've got a great idea for a thing on uh, We Will Remain or um, the, this thing that I'm trying to take, uh, work on with my Wednesday gaming group, like, both of those are things that when you're, the, when you tinker enough to make, like, when you tinker beyond an edition change, it, it slows down uh, being able to release things regularly, and, but yeah, I, I would love to see if WOTC, uh applied the same concept of their magic blocks to D&D. Um, They're thinking... Uh, there are rumors that 5th is the last edition mm. TM, you know, underscore capital. Uh, at which point, I would love to hear from somebody from Wizards about future plans, if anybody could talk about them. The things they've said publicly are interesting because they've been, uh, they've been saying that the slower release of things is very deliberate. Um, with past editions, they feel like... Uh, they flood the market. They, they flood the market, and it goes too soon. Um, and also, interestingly, pretty much everything so far has been adventures, um, which points in the direction they're thinking. Um, but as far as kind of the block concept, the kind of evergreen, like roll in a few things from that, and you've got a new printing, but it or you know a new edition in kind of the um, magic sense of this is a different set of tools, but doesn't it's still completely interchangeable with the old one. Um, I don't think the adventures they've published so far are conductive to that in what is included in the adventures. Like, I, I feel like to do that, you need your... To, to keep an edition evergreen, you have to be adding things to it that are sufficiently uh, different and that echo through the entire game. Right. Uh, and this is, again, the RPG design challenge. Like, right. on the one hand, if you add things that echo through the entire game, you're going to be... Uh, your, the way that people interact with the game, it's going to take them a long time to actually use up all of those rules things. Which is a, definitely an RPG thing, too. Like, Magic, you don't come to Magic and say, well, I need all of the cards to start playing. Yeah. Whereas if you come to a role-playing game, it hurts a little bit if you're like, well, I can't use those classes because they're in that supplement I don't have. And it's a really interesting split in mindset. It, and it's also a split in uh, how you approach those things. Like yeah. if, um, if I have, 
actually, sitting behind me, I've got a book called Tome of Magic for 3.5, which was really cool. at all these classes that approach magic differently, and the fact that those never entered play, uh, like I never actually, oh, wait, we used one of those classes once, um, kind of hurts. And on the other hand, the fact that magic cards exist that uh, I've never played in a deck does not bother me in the slightest, <laughs> which is... Completely understandable. This isn't like a an amazing insight that nobody's had before. Aww. But it, it just uh, it, it changes how these how additions look. Right. Because it's dangerous to add new rules because then people feel like they have to use them. Yes. And because the RPGs aren't uh, exception based design in the way that something like Magic or Netrunner uh, is, where you can keep the core rules mostly the same. They have to tweak them every once in a while to deal with new things. Um, but for the most part, they can print up a new set of cards and that has all the relevant rules if you understand the core of it. Whereas an RPG, if you start... Uh, it, it's almost... A lot of RPG changes are almost like they made a magic set where you had to start rolling D6s for powers and power and toughness. Like, instead of... Uh, it, it said plus one and minus one and you roll against the other person as opposed to just comparing numbers. Um, that, that's the kind of change that a lot of RPGs go through, even with their own supplements, practically. Yeah. I don't think we can pick a winner here. Yeah, the, I guess that we, we've... Well, but even with the advice episodes, we haven't picked a winner, per se. I don't know, but, but our favorite reason for new additions is that you've found some totally awesome way of approaching your original design. Yes, you, you have uh, something new in your toolkit. Uh, whether we call that technology or technique or whatever. Uh, you, you tech. Have... tech is a great word because it covers both of those. Oh, good point. I, I, my random choice of words was actually super insightful. Because I like technique because then it covers things like uh, writers who revisit uh, a similar concept but they now have new ways like they've entered a new style or something in that same kind of way. Like maybe it's not RPGs as technology tech all the time, though there are elements of that. It's technique as well. Sweet. Okay, so that is definitely the winner. Congratulations, tech. That is why editions exist, because of tech. Because <laughs> uh, we discover new No tech. other reason. No other reason. It, well, it's the best reason. Yeah, exactly. So, until next time, you can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast uh, and on Google Plus. Just search for another question. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet at us, leave us questions, uh, tell us things you'd like us to talk about. Yes. Until then, so long.